From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. If Rome wasn't built in a day, it's tough to expect a major college football program to reach its full potential in a similar time frame. The Gators were reminded that there are bound to be bumps in the road during a transition year in a 38-17 loss to Missouri on homecoming. Now the questions are all about how they'll respond and what will become of a season that has at times been incredibly promising. On today's show, We'll discuss the fallout from the Missouri game and the start of basketball season with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Plus, we'll talk to defensive lineman Marlon Dunlap Jr. and find out what brought the former Tar Heel and North Carolina lifer to Gainesville. But first, the Gators' hopes for a 10-win regular season were dashed in a flash by Drew Locke and the Tigers on Saturday, and Florida left with significantly more questions than answers. So to open our roundtable with Scott and Chris, we tried to answer what exactly happened to the Gators last weekend. Basically, what could go wrong did go wrong. You knew Florida was going to have to have some success to stop them. Drew Locke and Missouri's passing attack didn't happen. You knew Felipe Franks was going to have to have a bounce-back game after a poor performance against Georgia. Didn't happen. You knew Florida was going to have to uh, come out excited, uh, ready to play in front of a, a homecoming crowd. That this well, this was a team that still had a chance to win ten regular season games. Didn't happen. Dan Mullen clearly disappointed afterward. That it was the low point of Dan Mullen's tenure so far. Of course, I mean it's only nine games into his tenure, but still, yeah, you just didn't see that coming, or at least I didn't. Uh, I, I really thought the Gators would respond well like they did off the Kentucky loss earlier in the year. I thought they would respond well off the Georgia loss. And, and quite frankly, they played their worst game of the year. Uh, it was a game against Missouri that had some, you know, you could go back to 2014. It was one of those kind of days when uh, basically uh, nothing went right. Fans were shocked. Uh, the team almost didn't look like it wanted to be there. And there were some similarities in what happened on Saturday. And now we'll see how they respond uh, when South Carolina comes into town on uh, Saturday because anything similar to what they did against Missouri, and they'll have another loss. For the second straight week, Adam, you, you know, you don't want to put someone in the crosshairs, but, I mean, quarterback play was the difference against Georgia. Um, Felipe Franks turned the ball over twice, missed that first uh, flea flicker throw of the game versus Rome, who, you know, sat back in the pocket when, you know, going into the game, I, I sat here and talked about how, the Gators need, you know, he's not the kind of guy who can pick defenses apart in the pocket. Well, he, he was against the Florida defense that day. So fast forward to the Missouri game, and obviously uh, Drew Locke was the difference in that game. He made big plays down the field. Florida's passing game did not make big plays down the field. I think uh, I think I had a stat in my story that Missouri had seven pass plays of 19 yards or more. Florida had one. And there were plays out there to be had. Uh, uh, now, now Mullen, after the game, um, was quick to defend. Franks he said, you know, he, he also said it was it wasn't one of his best games, but he also said it's hard to make plays when three guys are getting pulled off off you after the play. So obviously it's not just one thing. There's a, it was a collection of things. But having said that, um, 
you know, Missouri's, Missouri's offense made some big plays against the Florida defense where I thought Florida's defense was going to have a bounce back game, especially when it came to pass rush and what have you. But um, I think if you kind of are, are being honest about it a little bit, sitting next to Scott in the press box before the game and he, he and a couple other, and I said, I think they're going to lose one of these next two games. I think they're going to lose one of the next two games. And they certainly got a bad one out of, out of the way, uh, the other day, but and I have to think that maybe after the Georgia game, they thought, okay, our last three games are at home. Here's the first one. Missouri hadn't won in the SEC yet. They didn't make a first down in the whole second half against Kentucky. I think they were probably feeling a little bit like, you know, we're just going to show up and we got the swamp behind us. And in reality, the swamp environment wasn't great. It was kind of like, again, an, an imperfect kind of storm. And Drew Locke uh, took advantage of it, and now bounce back game has to come against a South Carolina team with a obviously a coach who's going to be motivated coming in here, and obviously a, a South Carolina offense that is capable of um, taking advantage of defensive breakdowns. They hung 48 on Ole Miss the other day. That was a road game too, wasn't it? Yeah. They'll probably feel pretty good looking at the tape of the Missouri game coming in here this weekend. There's a couple directions I want to go based on what you guys just said, but let's start with the one that's most topical. Uh, that, you know, frankly, we've talked about on lots of podcasts, not just this year, but every year since we've ever done this. And before we had a podcast, it was talked about in columns and on radio and everywhere else. It's the quarterback position. Um, I think a lot of people were skeptical of Felipe Franks entering this year based on what he did last year. And now, as you guys are well aware, a lot of the fan base, uh, they completely turned on him last week. And, you know, I've, I'm never one to say I, I'm. I've never believed in booing college athletes, especially your own. So I, I don't know that that's the approach. But obviously, you know, fans are frustrated with the production at that position, and they want faster results. That was Emory Jones in the Georgia game, and then there was Kyle Trask against Missouri. The question I have for you guys is just gauging what you've seen, and you guys are in practice. You, you see a lot more than most people. Where is this quarterback situation at right now, and, and what are the realistic expectations for where it can go in the next few weeks? I think it's a, a lot of it's up in the air. I mean, Dan Mullen hasn't confirmed anything this week, so I mean, I think he's looking at all three guys. He said that they could play two guys Saturday, they could play three. Uh, he's still adamant about would like to be able to redshirt Emory Jones, meaning that you know he could still play a couple more games this season, but not all three. I think he's looking at who's going to give him the best chance to win the game. Uh, is that going to be Felipe Franks? He thought it was against Missouri. It turned out in, in retrospect, the way Kyle Trask came in and played, it looked like he was better prepared, certainly had a better performance, and he's reevaluating that this week. I know fans have certainly uh, jumped on Felipe Franks this week, like you mentioned. And you know, When I look at his body of work this year, Adam, I saw a guy who really showed some signs of progress early. Uh, you look at the first four games, he had 12 touchdowns and two interceptions. You look at the last five games, I think it's four touchdowns, four interceptions. So there has been a drop-off. But is he still the best that they have to win a game? Is That's going to be the question. Mm-hmm. That if, he, if Dan Mullen thinks that Felipe Franks gives him the best chance to win Saturday against South Carolina, we're going to see Felipe Franks. And regarding Trask, you know, he certainly gave the, the sideline and the stadium a jolt by driving him down to touchdown his first series uh, ever in a in an SEC game. But having said that, the, it was a 25-point lead for Missouri when he came in. Uh, they were sitting back. They were giving stuff underneath. He just found it, and that's that's to his credit. He did what he was supposed to do. 
But like in anything else, the the guy who's not playing is always the more popular guy. Uh, that showed up obviously on social media uh, ad nauseum um, this week and has since that game ended, and um, to the point of you know sickness at some point with some of these uh, some of the things got tweeted at me about Felipe Franks are ridiculous. I'm with you, Adam. You know you, there were boos and it was unseemly, uh, but at some point Dan Mullen does have to make a decision on what's best for the team. Up to this point, he's obviously thought that Felipe Franks gave gave his team a better chance to win and. You know, if Felipe Franks trots out there against South Carolina on Saturday, you got to think that Dan Mullen felt the same thing. And, you know, he's a lot smarter about football decisions than certainly you or me. I don't know about Scott, but uh, I'm going to say he is. But uh, I don't have any insight into it. I don't think Scott has any insight into it. Um, I think we'll all be probably – I don't think we'll hear anything between now and kickoff. uh, Same here. I don't think so either. Come Saturday. He was asked uh, on the SEC conference call uh, whether or not – he had a, it was going to be a game time decision. And he said, you know, I'm not really going to share a strategy with anybody. So, you know, I will see. We'll see. I mean, it's not unexpected at all. And bigger question to me is the quarterback obviously is going to play a big role. But if, if they lose that game, you know, I think they really need to just bounce back. As we look at where this team is at right now, I think this is maybe the most interesting topic and, and the hardest to answer potentially because expectations have varied so wildly over the course of the year. Coming into the season, I think it was the understanding, oh, it's a transition year, expectations were low. But then after the five-game winning streak, the performances specifically against Tennessee on the road, Mississippi State on the road, then LSU at home and what was a marquee game, it seemed like all of a sudden people flipped a switch and said, wait a minute, we skipped the transition and we're already we're already at the spot where we're you know competing for the college football playoff. And there were signs that looked like Florida could do that. I guess that the question I have is right now, which team is Florida closer to? Are they the rebuilding team where this should be expected, the kind of results we saw in the last two weeks? Or are they playing below what they're capable of because of what we saw against teams like Mississippi State and LSU? Well, I have to think that they certainly could have put up a, a better performance against Missouri, and I think if you probably polled everyone in the locker room, they would say the same thing. But I also uh, don't know that if you polled the uh, Florida fan base, if they would have said that through nine games, the Gators would be six and three going into the season. So, you know, the answer, like everything else, is probably probably somewhere in the middle. I do Obviously, the team is, the program is still in rebuild mode. There's, there's a lot of positions that are, that are unsettled, you know, starting with the most, with the marquee one. Uh, I'm st- sure there's still a, a franchise quarterback out there to be had for Dan Mullen somewhere if there's not one in his locker room right now. But uh, uh, there had to be an element, and I, I go back to what I just said a little while ago, there had to be an element of, of, yeah, we feel pretty good about ourselves, and then there was no shame in losing to Georgia the way Florida did. The game was competitive in the fourth quarter. But what happened the other day had to take them by surprise a little bit. And I, I don't, coaches don't like to say talk about overconfidence and everything, but it, I have a hard time thinking that there wasn't some of that going on with a Missouri team coming in here the way they'd been struggling and hadn't won a game in the Southeastern Conference yet. But there's still obviously a lot of work to do on both sides of the ball and building depth on this team, finding playmakers, certainly mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the passing game, and building depth uh, on, on the defense because uh, you know, the defense was playing well and making all those turnovers. But once things started to get a little dicey in the secondary when some guys couldn't play, uh, that's when some um, holes started to open up for some Big plays by opponents. Well, as a road this week, Adam, I mean, I, I've been surprised by what the Gators have done this year. I, 
a lot of people have made a topic out of the crowd at the Missouri game, how it was less on homecoming than they expected. Dan Mullen touched on it. Uh, fans have debated it. Um, I don't have all the answers for the crowd. I just know that this team has superseded what I expected. I figured eight and four is going to be a good year at the start of season. Mm. So right now they're sitting at six and three. So, you know, that means what? They got to go two and one to get to where I thought. But last week before they lost to Missouri, I was thinking 10 and two in the regular season where it was real possible. So I kind of got swept got up. Yeah, I kind of got swept up in that too. Maybe that, whoa, they're better than they, than maybe most people expected. And, and you know what? They may very well rebound and win these last three games in the bowl game and finish 10 and three. And from what I've seen so far, I won't be surprised because they certainly had some good moments. I mean, you have to be a pretty good team to go on the road and beat Mississippi State and to beat LSU at home. Um, and they were right there with Georgia. you got to remember, they were leading 14-13 to 13 early in the third quarter. So it, it's not like they got blown out by Georgia. But their worst, they laid an egg against Missouri. I mean, that was their worst performance of the year. Uh, we saw what Kentucky did. Kentucky's a good team. So that early season loss to Kentucky, while it was shocking at the time, in retrospect, you know, that's not a bad loss. Missouri lost. 0-4 in the conference before that game, to me, that's a bad loss. Mm-hmm. And the way it happened, they gave up, uh, what, 471 yards of offense. Uh, the offense didn't really click until, you know, Trask came in in the late in the third quarter, got them on the board, but it was only 35-17 at that point. So just a lot of uh, a lot of things went wrong, man. Uh, I think we're going to find out the answer to your question in these last three games. I think we're going to find out starting – Saturday, I'm, I'm really curious. To me, how they respond on Saturday, it, it, I'm as curious about that as I am anything up to this point in the season. So as football comes closer toward the end, basketball is now finally starting. And it got underway on Tuesday night in Tallahassee. And uh, I wish it was something more positive to talk about than football. But unfortunately, it was a really, really rough night for the Gators, Chris. And, you know, I, I, we talk about people love to see opening games against big-time opponents in football. Uh, in basketball, this experiment for Florida did not go very well uh, against Florida State. Yeah, I mean, you saw the start to the season, but it, uh, the Gators didn't have much of a start at all. Uh, Andrew Nemar did the first shot, gave Florida a three-point lead. Florida was up 6-2, to two, and then eight straight points by Florida State. Next thing you know, they were off and running, and it was it was not a competitive game at all. Um, it had a lot of looks. Actually, even worse so than the blowout last year against Florida State that w- that was here. I can't be honest with you, Adam. I mean, the, the worst loss in this series uh, for for Florida against Florida State since 1995. That was a neutral court game in Orlando. Uh, I I'll be honest with you. I I just wasn't that surprised at what happened because when you look at what Florida took to Tallahassee, how they're built. Until we see some kind of a, a element of of productivity and consistency and physicality in the front court, when you play a team like Florida State that goes 7'4 and 270 in, in the pivot, uh, they had a 6'10, 260-pound uh, uh, forward. They're just an aggressive, long, athletic team that could really match up with you inside, even when they want to go smaller. Uh, you know, it just didn't it didn't look right for Florida, and, and Florida played down to it. They weren't physical. They they, they didn't try to drive, drive against uh, – uh, Chris Kumadage, who again is not a guy who probably encourages you to drive against him at seven foot four, but you have to do some stuff to open up things on the perimeter. And you also, if you're this Florida team, 
you can't have Jalen Hudson score 11 points and Kayvon Allen score no points. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Mike White said said afterwards, um, he had a couple of good quotes afterwards, and they were all, he, he wore it all out there. I mean, he talked about how, how good Florida State is. He goes, I just hope we're not this bad. And he also said that he was shell-shocked not only by how they performed, but he used the word shell-shocked for Kayvon Allen's line in this opening game of the senior season. This guy has 1,297 points. He's 30th all-time scorer in Florida basketball history. You can't go into a game, a big game like this on the road against a ranked opponent. I mean, the, the guy has to be productive, and he ends up taking four shots. Doesn't make any. And I'm talking 23 minutes on the floor, so it wasn't like he wasn't out there playing. So they absolutely have to get something slash anything out of Kayvon Allen. They also have to get something from a front court that scored 16 points. And having said that, I don't think this is going to be the way it, it is throughout the season. I know a lot of fans are discouraged. They were tough on Mike White and some of these players last night on Twitter as they were on Felipe Franks last weekend. But, geez, it's one game. It's one game, and a lot can happen over the course of a college basketball season. It's, I'll put it in perspective again. Uh, for fun, on the bus ride home from Tallahassee, uh, I got on the Kentucky message boards and <laughs> read about how embarrassed Kentucky fans were about getting blown out by 30-some points by that Duke team that looked like Golden State Warriors. Kentucky was what, number four in the country? Or number two in the country. Duke was number four in the country. And you ha- you're talking about like maybe seven of the best 10 freshman signees in the country were on the court that night. So um, everyone has their problems after one game. Florida's problems are probably a little worse than Kentucky's problems right now, but they will be addressed and there's plenty of basketball left to play. Moving on to our PAT, it's inspired by the latest biggest game ever that didn't turn out to be that big of a game. And as usual, it involved Alabama. It was Saturday night. It was Alabama LSU, a top three matchup in Death Valley. And Alabama was favored by 14 and a half. And some thought, oh, that's too much. They can't do that on the road at night at Death Valley. And then they won 29 to nothing and just absolutely dominated in the way that at this point in college football, really only Alabama does. Although you could argue uh, Clemson's starting to put up some scores like that as well. The competition level, probably not quite the same. But in any case, I'm starting to wonder how long this Alabama dynasty will go. Probably as long as Nick Saban is there, you'd have to believe. But beyond that, is this a good thing for college football? Is it good to have this giant villain for, for many people? I mean, in a way, I sort of admire them because of how great they are and the way they continue to execute at such a high level. But, you know, you've got the Yankees traditionally, the Yankees in the 90s, uh, you had the Lakers in the 2000s. I mean, it seems like a lot of sports benefit from having that longtime giant everybody can rail against. How do you guys feel about the Alabama dynasty at this point in college football? Well, if I'm a fan of Muscle Shoals, Alabama, or, or, or somewhere down there, I, I, I feel great about it. But no, I don't think it's good for college football at all. And uh, it's probably not good that it, it looks like already a, a beeline to another uh, Alabama-Clemson game, which would, I mean, how many would that be? It would be the fourth year in a row they could potentially play in the college football playoff, Alabama and Clemson, back-to-back championship games, and then last year's semifinal. I don't think it's good for, for college football. I think you need diversification in there. You know, you mentioned uh, the Yankees and the Lakers. And, uh, you know, the Yankees didn't win every one. Some other teams snuck in there. Even your Braves, actually, if I recall. You probably weren't alive then. Uh, I was, although not, not over the Yankees. That was over the Cleveland Indians. Other teams won World Series. Hell, the Marlins won World Series during that time. <laughs> 
But uh, uh, you mentioned the Lakers. I mean, the, the Celtics had their run, and you had no. I I I don't think it's good. Not in a sport that has 130 teams. It's almost like predetermined. Uh, uh, Alabama is going to win yet another national championship, and uh, and again, that's phenomenal achievement. And the guy is just with with each win and with each statement, like he made the other night against LSU in Baton Rouge. I mean, 29 nothing. He just puts himself. Uh, jacks himself further up that pedestal as as the best coach in college football history so not a big fan of it I wasn't surprised at the outcome because I thought about that after the Missouri game as they were running on the field at uh, LSU I said well Florida beat LSU what is LSU's chance of beating Alabama right now? you know I'm kind of along the same lines of Chris on this one Adam because you know, when you mentioned great dominance in sports, I mean, the, it goes back to the old days for the 50s and 60s. You got to remember the Yankees and the Celtics. I think Bill Russell won 11 NBA titles in like 13 years of doing one stretch. Wow. Uh, so if you were a Celtics fan, you loved it. I think the Yankees, when they had the Maggio and that crew, I think they won 8 of 10 or something. I mean, it, so if you were a Yankees fan, you loved it. And that's how those franchises are two of the uh, most iconic in American sports. Mm-hmm. But what Chris said, his main thing was, in those sports back then, I mean, I don't, I don't have the top of my head. There may have been 16 NBA teams. There may have been 22 Major League Baseball teams. There's 130 FBS football <laughs> programs. And if you want to cut it to the Power Five, there's 60 some of those. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. come on, come on. So, I mean, what they're doing is ridiculous. and. It kind of, I mean, is Nick Saban really that much better than every other coach? And Dabo Swinney, I mean, you got to give Dabo Swinney credit. Mm-hmm. Got, I didn't think maybe he would sustain it at Clemson like Saban has at Alabama, but he has. And um, that just shows you what they're doing is working and the kids want to play there. The elite kids, whether or not they're from Alabama or South Carolina, they're wanting to go to those two programs. And it's kind of a head scratcher for me. I mean, I just... I didn't think we'd see it in this day and age, one program to be able to uh, dominate like Alabama has now for a decade. And Of course, you had some, you know, Urban Meyer, Ohio State snuck in there a year. Uh, you had Auburn one year with Cam Newton. But most of it, most of it's been Alabama saving Clemson is 20, and it looks like it's going to be that way again. All I can say is I'm tired of it. Fair enough. And also on a, a you know, a macro level, too, in the SEC, this Alabama and Georgia SEC championship thing, that may become a trend, too, if you look at the landscape of the division. That's why Florida wants to accelerate their uh, their return to prominence, because otherwise we may see Alabama and Georgia frequently, given the way that both of those schools are recruiting and the way that they're playing as well. So a, yeah. lot, of the, yeah, a lot of that's going on right now in college football, I think, if, if you, you look around. I like, I like the marquee matchups. I like greatness against greatness. I loved it when I was younger and the 49ers and Cowboys were both humming along and they met two or three years in a row in the NFC championship game. But then you kind of get tired of it after a while, no matter who it is. And I think that's where a lot of people are with the Alabama and the Clemson angle. And, but you know, until somebody can knock them off, we're going to keep getting it. Well, luckily, I never get tired of talking to you guys, even though Chris may get tired of talking to me. But that's okay. We got to do it every week because we got to keep the people informed. And there's a lot to stay abreast of at the moment. Obviously, Gator basketball, Chris will be tweeting and writing about that this weekend over at FloridaGators.com and at Gators Chris. And both Chris and Scott will have you covered for Florida football against South Carolina. At Gators Scott is the handle on him. And again, all the content up on FloridaGators.com. Gentlemen, thank you so much as always. 
All right, thanks. Thanks, Adam. At their best, the strength of this Gator squad has undoubtedly been the defensive front. So considering the struggles that Florida has suffered in the last couple weeks, it comes as no surprise that the numbers for the D-line have been empty. One of the new guys in this year's rotation is Marlon Dunlap Jr., a transfer from UNC who left the Tar Heel State for the first time in his life when he decided to become a Gator. We spoke to the junior junior about his migration down south and his transition into the program, and he began by giving his take on where the Gators aired against Missouri. I feel like we just could have locked in a little bit better, been focused a little bit more than what we did, you know. I feel like we gave up some stuff that we really seen already, and we probably wasn't locked in on it, so we, we accidentally missed it. So, you know, I feel like we got to be more locked in be more detailed with how we do our stuff. As players, we need to be more aware of different formations that coaches teach us, what the team is going to run. I feel like we need to be more locked in and be more like aware of that stuff. So yeah, I feel like we just made a lot of mistakes that we could have fixed. I'm sure that plays into to this answer as well, but I'm curious overall, what message did Coach Mullen deliver to the team after the game and, and what, what did you take from that? Uh, he basically said like um, after that game, he's going to show us like what the, who the men and who the boys are. I mean, it's basically like three. We got three games left. We got two games in the swamp. So, you know, finish how we want to finish. Finish how we plan to finish. I mean, of course, it's not the obvious finish that we wanted to have, but it's still pride, playful pride, playful game, play for the swamp. You know, stuff like that. So basically, like, just come back with the same mindset, ready to attack again, no matter how much, no matter how bad stuff went. So I feel like that was his message. I saw that this week Coach Grantham said that the key is you guys got to get back to where you were against Mississippi State, against LSU, and you were playing at a really elite level. What do you yeah. think you can do to get back to that level? Well, I just feel like we just need to focus on the details a little bit more. Like we was locked in, wake up to play the game, you know, be aware of what's going on. Since we are the Florida Gators, there a lot of people are targeting, like not, not targeting us. But a lot of people are looking at us and everybody going to give us their best game. So we can't never come out sleeping or come out starting. So we always got to come out. I feel like those games, we started off pretty strong defensively and it kept going throughout. I just feel like we got to keep that consistent play. Like we got to keep that consistent in order for us to take it to the next level. Like I know, like we know we need it. I want to take things back a little bit and talk about you and, and where you grew up. So can you tell us? about your family and the, the early days of Marlon Dunlap? I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. I attended West Charlotte High School. We started playing football when I was like about seven years old. So I've been playing for a little minute. Played by Warner, then I went straight to high school. So yeah, that was fun. And then my mom, my mom name is Quinta Dunlap. My dad named Mom Dunlap. I'm a junior. Mm-hmm. And they, they are like my biggest role model. They're the best parents on this earth. If you ask me, they do everything. <laughs> They do everything they can to help me out in any way I can. They look out for me any way they can. So they're like, they're the best parents. I can't, I can't ask for nothing. Nobody, nobody better than them. So yeah, I mean, we all real tight. I got a brother named Tyler Dunlap. He's uh, my younger brother. And I think he got an offer from Florida Gators. And, um, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> so yeah, but that's a big one, man. He outgrowing. He, I feel like he gonna outgrow me. He, he may outgrow me. <laughs> I got a sister, Tierra. That's my older sister named Tierra Wallace. But yeah, I feel like I got a very tight family. So you mentioned starting to play football about seven years old. When did you really fall in love with the game? When was the moment you said, oh, wow, I'm, I really think I love this and want to keep doing this? 
Well, I know at first I felt like when I first started playing, like my first year, I felt like I was doing it mostly because I see my older cousins and my dad and my uncles, all of them was like, they really enjoyed football. So, I mean, I felt like that was an opportunity for me to go ahead and try it out. I know it was kind of, it was, it kind of took a, took a lot to get uh, like accustomed to when I first started, but I think I fell in love with it probably about my, I think it was in my first year, probably wasn't at first. But like probably in the middle of the year, that's when I was like, okay, I gotta continue to play this game for the rest of my life because I, I could be very good at it. Mm. And that's when I started. Like my first year, when I was, I was like, basically, this is what I gotta do. Like this is what I want to do. And I just basically kept it rolling from there. Did your brother get into it because of you? Was he sort of chasing you in a way? What What's that dynamic like? Well, just like me, I think he grew up with a lot of football people. Like a lot of football people around. Like I know I was a big. I was one of his biggest role models. We shared rooms, <laughs> so and I played football. So yeah, I mean, of course he was gonna look at me. I was like, okay. And then my cousins, all my cousins, they played football. So I mean, it was it, it's just something that's embedded embedded in our family. That's like it's just football is just in our family. Yeah, so I mean, everybody just basically took a hold to it and just kept working at it. I mean, we would work at it together. I take him in the backyard. He'll run routes. He could do a lot of stuff. That's the thing about it. That boy is very athletic. So <laughs> I take him here. Yeah, I mean, we just did different stuff. So I mean, I think he got it. Look, basically from the family, and then he grew love for it too. Is he also on the D line? Yeah, he played defensive. I don't know if he played outside linebacker. He played a little bit of both. He played outside linebacker, defensive end. So there's there's some some competition there, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. Who can get to the quarterback the best? <laughs> <laughs> so when it was time for you to make a decision about where you're going to go to school. Uh, I'm, I know you had a lot of interest. Can you talk about what that recruiting process was like and why you ended up choosing North Carolina? I just felt like um, at the time, North Carolina was the best opportunity for me at that time. I mean, because basically they was the one that catered to me. Well, not catered to me, but like the coaches, I had a great relationship with the coaches and I just felt like a bond with the coaches was more than anything. I mean, the players was cool and all that. The, um um, town was good and it was right by my house so close and I was able to go home and see my family and stuff. So all of that probably played a big part into uh, me going to North Carolina. So then after your freshman year, you decided to transfer. I'm curious what went into that decision and what led you to Florida? Um, I just felt like at that time, I just needed to be in a different area, in a different space, like in the need. Getting a fresh start, uh, just starting over somewhere else. I feel like I wanted to go out of state and go to somewhere like in the SEC where I could take, feel like I really could take my game to the next level. And I mean, at the end of the day, I feel like that's what, I mean, that's what I did. I mean, I felt like I went to a new place and I mean, I, nothing towards North Carolina though, but I feel like they was a great school and I love the boys down there. Like I made a lot of brothership with a lot of the boys down there, but, um, yeah, I just feel like I wanted to take my – I wanted to go to a new place where I could get a fresh start. So growing up in Charlotte and then you go to UNC, I mean, it's, it seems like, you know, you're, you're kind of a homebody in a way, right? And you've got your, your your close family. How big of a shock to the system was it to leave there and, and go where, you, you know, you couldn't drive home whenever you wanted and some of the things you were able to do before? That was a big situation. I know – I mean, it wasn't a big situation because I knew once I committed to Florida that that was going to be the case. But, like – uh I got accustomed to it real quick. I mean, I just started staying. I had to stay in school. I mean, that's what I really needed to do anyway. Because, I mean, I heard the saying, if you go home a lot, you get homesick when you come back. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was a good, it was good that I stay at school anyway. 
coming in as a transfer, I'm, I'm sure it can be difficult trying to you know adjust to a different climate and kind of a new atmosphere. What were uh-huh. the toughest parts of that for you, and, and which teammates were most helpful during that transition? Probably the climate, but I don't know for a fact the heat was something that I had to adjust to because I've never been in heat like that. I know training camp was very hot, <laughs> but I mean, that's, that's what it is when you play football in Florida. I mean, and uh, the teammates that was helpful, I feel like the whole defensive line, the whole defensive line was real helpful because they went through before, and I think I was the only one that was like the first one at camp here. So they've been through it before, and they told me, I mean, it's going to be hot, but you're going to get through it. I know that I'm sure when it's hot, all you want to do is just get out and play, but you had to sit out. So uh, I'm I'm curious, yeah. how did you handle that? Because sitting out is tough by itself, but especially when you're sitting out during a really tough year for the team, how did you get through that challenge? Yeah, I mean, basically at that time, I just sat down, listened. I mean, I was the, all, of, all the older boys here. I wanted to see everybody, you know, get to, get to see how they played and Seeing how just stuff went around here, you know, um, at that time I was really just learning, 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 learning. I was all years. I wasn't, you know, at that time I was just learning. I was learning, lifting weights, trying to get ready, to, trying to get back for the spring, get ready for the spring and all that. So basically I was just learning, like, from people like Jakai, Zuniga, all them boys. I was just trying to learn from them boys. And hey, that's all. That's basically it. It sounds like it was a great opportunity to learn from those guys. I'm curious. In what ways do you think you improved the most from the time you spent sitting out? I feel like with me sitting out, I feel like I got quicker and I'm, I got my body weight down a lot. So I know I was like 320 pounds at one point in time, and then I got all the way down to about 295 pounds by the spring. So I feel like that was great. That was great for me because I feel like it gave me more. It gave me more of a burst when I come on my stand. So I really enjoy. I really one. That was really one of my main goals when. Uh, I got here was it like tone down and get a little bit smaller so I could come out the ball like I know I could come out the ball. Well, and a lot of guys too when they sit out, you know, they develop off the field as well. So I'm curious, how did you feel like you grew off the field in addition to what you gained in, in a football sense? Off the field, I mean, I had a little bit more time at home because you know I wasn't always at the stadium like on Saturdays. And, well, I was at the stadium on Saturday, but you know. I like the boys, and on Fridays, I was at home a little bit more. So I feel like I got a little bit more time at home. And it's just basically about, you know, just um, every Saturday I used to watch the boys. And, you know, just it was just a good thing to get that. Got a chance to see how the uh, university, like, is on game days and all that. Mm-hmm. I was coming out and seeing how packed it was and everybody – everywhere. I moved my car one morning and came back and it was gone. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the game days here. I seen that firsthand. They was hectic, and that that was definitely something I um, I enjoyed. I, I enjoyed seeing. Yeah, getting getting toads a big part of the game day experience. I guess right. <laughs> yeah. When you're sitting out, I'm sure you're building up anticipation. All you want to do is play. Can you tell us what it was like when you finally got on the field this year after having to wait so long for that moment? Oh, it was electric. I know I was nervous, probably. Uh, I was real nervous. <laughs> I didn't want to mess up. <laughs> but I also wanted to go out there and do my best. So, I mean, I just had to find the equilibrium of the two. And I just wanted to go out there and have fun. I mean, I have played football in about a year on a, like, on a real field in a real game. So, I mean, like, that's something I really wanted to do. I was really, I was really anxious to go out there. I was really anxious. I know for a fact I was anxious that whole week. Cause I mean, it's been it had been so long, mm-hmm. 
I felt like, so I was very anxious. And when I got out there, had the first play, had the second play, I felt right back at home. I mean, that's where I grew up at. <laughs> so, yeah, I was all right. You know, people love debating and comparing conferences, right? So you've played in both the ACC and the SEC. So uh, you seem like a pretty a qualified source to tell us the differences, if you can compare and contrast playing in the two conferences for us. Man, I just feel like all football is hard, but I'm, I'm going to go out on it and I'm going to say, yeah, ain't no getting up. You can't just get up and roll the ball out over the SEC team and you're going to beat them. I feel like Coach Mullen tell us all the time, you can't do that. I mean, you got to prepare all week long. It starts from Monday when we come in the building. And it ends Friday night. I mean, mm-hmm. basically that's all the up to kickoff. I mean, you got to prepare, prepare, prepare for the SEC teams. I mean, I feel like it's not a lot of weaknesses in the SEC, like at position, like type position types. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of weaknesses. So it's fun though. I love it. I know I've been having a lot of fun in the SEC. I really have. You mentioned the heat. So I'm going to take that out of the equation here. Outside of the heat, what have been the biggest differences living in Florida? after a lifetime spent in North Carolina? The rain. <laughs> the rain, yeah. Not used to that. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I, um, it rained in Charlotte, of course, but it didn't rain as much as it did down here. Like, I know the summer, it rained every day. It wasn't the day that it went by. It didn't rain. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Off the field, when you have some time outside of football, what are some things that you enjoy doing? Probably going out to eat with my girlfriend, going out to eat with the uh, – D-line boys and all that, you know, just enjoying myself, playing 2K, playing Madden, like, you know, regular college boys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, just, just chilling, relaxing. I study my film and all that stuff. You know, just stuff in the house, because, you know, once you got to practice, you get tired. So you really just want to go home and relax or, you know, go home with a loved one or go home with your boys and just relax. When, and we want to let you get home and relax right now. So I just got one final thing for you. Uh, uh-huh. South Carolina, that's obviously what all the attention's on right now. Tell us a little bit about the preparation going into this weekend and, and what you guys are, are really going to be focusing on. Well, basically, we just want to focus on coming out and playing like us. It's not really a particular thing. I mean, we just want to definitely come out and play like we know we can play. So we've been preparing hard. I mean, we got to prepare. Apparently, we got to prepare harder. So we've been doing that. I mean, that's basically what we're trying to do: just be on our P's and Q's, execute like we know we can execute, and bring it on Saturday. We're trying to do that every day this week, and do that on Saturday just as well. I mean, I feel like that's what's what's hard. Like Coach Miller says, is what's hard is doing it every day, every day, and every week. I mean, it's a it's a twelve game season, so. Hey, it's a long time. It's a long season. So, I mean, that's the hardest part is doing it every day and every week. So, it's a good challenge for us to go be able to execute and play like we play. I mean, and do what we got to do. I mean, I feel like we can. I feel like I know we can. Obviously, when the defense is at its best, the sack totals have been huge, especially for the defensive line. Last couple mm-hmm. games, no sacks for the defensive line. How do you change that equation? How do you get that pressure back into the mix? Because that seems to be the key to, to what this defense does. Um, I feel like we just can execute a little bit better than what we're doing on our, on the D-line and, you know, do better moves, come off the ball a little bit faster than what we're doing. I feel like uh, we've been we've been looking at too much. I feel like that's the case. We've probably been looking at too much. Well, I know I have probably. And I feel like we just need to just worry about going to get to the, get, get to the quarterback on pass, obvious pass downs. And that's all it is. I feel like we worry a little bit about too much on downs like that. So, I mean – I think we just need to just go and unleash, and we can, I mean, you see, we can get to quarterback. Well, Marlon, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you talking to us, and we wish you a lot of luck the rest of the season. 
Thank you, man. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Follow the Gators as they welcome in Will Muschamp and the Gamecocks on Saturday at noon on ESPN and the Gator IMG Sports Network. Then come back next Thursday as we'll break it all down. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the swamp.